0: So on the weekend, when a BBC Sports presenter tweets, for the love of God, no more podcasts. Bad news. We already have this one in the can. Episode three of Lockdown Football. Not the only Lockdown Football podcast around these days. We never said we were original. Will Downing with you. Episode three of Lockdown Football, not the only Lockdown Football podcast around these days. We never said we were original. Will Downing with you on the day that there was news that Gary Anderson and Daryl Gurney have both had to pull out of the virtual PDC home tour of darts because both have a very poor Wi-Fi connection. We're testing the Wi-Fi connections of various commentators tonight. First of all, Dmitry of Satanta Ukraine. You're with us, okay? Yeah, I will. What have you been up to this week?
1: Well, same old stuff. I don't think routine changes that much, but I watched a few more historical games and I can tell you that Hamburg, the Hamburg, they Burnley, both ties, both legs will be precise of the quarterfinal of the European Cup in were absolute crackers.
0: Never seen them. Mark Rodden, you have a gardening podcast on the go, apparently.
2: Uh, I put out a feeler, Will. Uh, I first video it seemed to go down well humorous gardening podcast maybe there's a future for it you know get some uh, footballers on to talk about their gardens they've nothing else to do
0: like the rest of us humorous we'll be the judge of that uh stefan johny how's your week been
3: excellent good weather after cooking gardening it was a week of playing chess chess you know it uh, was quite interesting organized a bit of a world cup you know in the home in our home for uh, week with the kids and uh, I won't tell you was a winner.
0: Have you tried virtual chess on the cam and is your Wi-Fi working for that? Because that's another sport that would work well. You don't have to have the two players in the same place.
3: Uh, I could do commentary as well on chess. It's not a problem.
0: Thrilling. Well, the latest news, the Bundesliga in both Germany and Austria, they're aiming for a return of the weekend of the 9th of May. Both countries have had Uh, Contact tracing very early on. They've had relatively low death counts so far from COVID-19, and there is potential that they could be back within the month. Now We've had some sad news again this weekend. It's the second weekend in a row that a member of England's World Cup winning squad of 1966 has passed away. Norman Hunter, who was one of Leeds United's most successful players ever, dying at the age of 76. He'd been diagnosed with coronavirus the centre-back winning two league titles with Leeds United during their great successful era under Don Revy. Won the FA Cup as well in 1972, having lost the 1970 final. They'd won the League Cup prior to that in 1968 and reached the European Cup final as well, where they were beaten in controversial circumstances by Bayern Munich. And like Peter Benetti and like Jimmy Greaves, as we've mentioned in previous weeks, he didn't play on the pitch in the World Cup final in 1966, didn't receive a medal at the time, but did subsequently 43 years later. That was quite a lead side, Dimitri.
1: Well, yeah, and it's one of those sides who were labelled at the time. And when it sticks, it just stays there. But I just don't think it was fair because when you watch the videos from those years, when you see how that team played eventually... Of course, there were some hard players, really hard players, and Norman Hunter was one of them. But when you watch that team play, you can see that it was a marvellous football inside. And I would recommend anyone to read a book by Rob Bakhti that's called The Unforgiven, the story of Don Reeve's Leeds United, which tells a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff uh, that was happening at the time and just tries to explain to people that Leeds weren't actually as dirty as people were suggesting at the time they were.
2: Yeah, well, the the famous thing about Norman Hunter is he was uh, nicknamed bite your legs, but um, supposedly that was a term of affection initially from the Leeds supporters. There was a banner for the 1972 Cup Final against Arsenal which they won, as referring to Norman bite your legs Hunter. Obviously an amazing player if he was the first ever player of the year as voted by his uh, fellow professionals back in 1974 as well. And there's a great line from uh, Brian Glanville's obituary in The Guardian that Reeve talked about Norman Hunter so much that um, the phrase wasn't Norman Hunter marvellous became quite famous at the time.
3: Some key figures as well from uh, Hunter. Seven on 26 games playing play on the lead with Leeds United uh, in the 70s and uh, two league titles in 69 74. I mean, that's pretty impressive. And uh, some European Cup games as well and kept uh, and trophies. And, and you know, he won the World Cup as well in 1966 and got his medal in 2009. And uh, even though he didn't play a single minute in the, the World Cup in 66, yeah, a brilliant player did exceptionally well exceptionally well with Leeds United and uh, unfortunately died from the virus. And uh, that's a, you know, sad story and to end up that way. But uh, still,
1: like, you know, a legend for Leeds United. When it got to those videos of that Leeds, you know, the goal they scored against Southampton, I mean, 74, 75, it was like they had 25 passes in a row.
2: yeah, yeah. And it yeah, just, but 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 they were dirty. They were taking the nick out
1: of the team.
0: They of were
1: hammering. No, every, every team was dirty at the time. You Look at those pitches now they played on. It, just, it was impossible not to be dirty on that
0: pitch. It's actually worth pointing out, by the way, that the dramatisation of Brian Clough's 44 days in charge of Leeds United, the fictional account, the Damned United, that's actually on BBC One on Saturday night just before midnight with Brian Clough being played. So memorably by Michael Sheen, who did an amazing turn during the week on Quiz on ITV as Chris Tarrant, the dramatisation of the coughing major and uh, the million pound win on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Um, it, it was an astonishing lead side for a while. But when John Revy left, Demetra just sort of began to unravel a little bit. And then Cluffy came in and it just wasn't quite the same after that.
1: Well I think it is natural because we all remember what happened to Man United when Sir Matt Busby left and for how long they were trying to get another title. So that's the sort of thing that happens to a club when a, a figure like Don Revie leaves the club. Well it didn't happen to Liverpool when Bill Shankly left, yes, but it did happen to Leeds and now when they're trying to get back to the Premier League and a very charismatic manager as well. I'm really surprised, though, know, to hear that people already compare Bielsa to Don Rivi. Just stop. Don Rivi is the greatest manager in the history of Leeds United. That's obvious. So even if Bielsa takes him to the Premier League, and even if they can do something good there under Marcelo Bielsa, you just cannot beat what Don Rivi achieved with Leeds.
0: And I mean, Leeds are still up there uh, with West Bromwich Albion at the top of the championship during their suspension. Whereas by this stage last year, they'd started to tire. They'd begun to fall back. They have a bit more stamina this season.
1: Well, the funny thing is that Bielsa is always very nervous when people start talking about his place, you know, not being physically prepared uh, to last until the end of the season. Because Stefan must remember that when he was with Marseille, they were leading the league and they just started losing points in March or April and they couldn't win it. So he said in one of the interviews during the press conference even that they do all the usual tests. And the players in April were even fitter than they were in October. And these are scientific facts, you know, <laughs> you just do the test and you see uh, all the results. So it's more about probably mentality, psychology. It does tire you mentally when you play for him in that very intense, yeah. highly intense uh,
3: I think way. You know, the, I think, sorry, Mitra, but I think the tendency with Marcel Bielsa, not the his uh, squad. And... Uh, in League One, yes, I mean we we saw that in the last few months he, he struggled, you know, well, they struggled to finish. But also uh, in the championship last season, uh, the players were, you know, physically couldn't uh, couldn't do it, and they they they've been hammered by Debbie County in the uh, returning of the playoff, um, and that was an issue that Bielsa needs to address. And this season is a different story. They had. Um, they struggle a little bit over Christmas and, uh, and January, and it seems you know they bounce back again before the uh, the season was suspended. But, uh, yes, uh, yeah, that's a problem for him, and uh, it's not from today. He, I think he's got a, a core of players that he wants to keep on the pitch, and uh, and has no intention to rotate his squad at all. And uh, and that you know sometimes creates you know some uh. Well, some issues for him on the long-term run, especially if he, if he's looking for promotion and, and knowing that the championship is such a as sprints of, of marathon and uh, it's very, very demanding every weekend and uh, and they play, you know, two, two to three games a week at times, uh, especially over Christmas, and uh, it's very, very demanding.
0: The EFL have a plan as well, that they want to wrap up the season in 57 days. And uh, another thing which has emerged from the joint meeting between the Premier League and the EFL, uh, which was held on Friday, is that all championship matches, perhaps all EFL games, would be streamed live in the clear uh, should they get their season up and running. Because the season in England, pretty much everywhere if it is to reach a conclusion, would be reached behind closed doors, which I know would be quite odd. Wembley Stadium has also been offered as a potential venue to play games.
3: Wembley is still Wembley for most of the uh, English clubs, empty or not. That's, uh, that's a different story, but uh, that's the make of football, isn't it, in England? You still have to be played there, I guess.
0: In England, Premier League clubs remain committed to finishing the remaining fixtures of the season following a meeting this Friday, but no deadline has still been set. They're still waiting on the 30th of April. But in Scotland, there has been movement as all leagues below the premiership have now been stopped permanently. That's after the vote of Dundee came through for a second time. They elected to stop the leagues. And Mark Ron, there may be implications then for the top flight.
2: Yeah, well, there's uh, implications in general in Scotland because Rangers in particular aren't uh, happy with the way things were done there and um, they want an independent investigation of how the vote came about. Unfortunate for the likes of uh, Partick Thistle, who were uh, relegated um, from the second tier. Stranraer as well, a league below them. But in the top flight, they're looking into maybe uh, an extended league. One thing for sure is Dundee United are back and that's... um, very good I think for Scottish football obviously have a great history and it's good to see them
0: back in the top flight for next season whenever that takes place Partick Thistle deciding not to take legal action after that SPFL plan relegated them
2: yeah it's one of those things Uh, I think they came to the conclusion they said in their statement that um, it would have cost them a lot of money to uh, take legal action and
0: uh, that's not something that they necessarily have right now. Well, in Spain, three scenarios have been proposed, including stopping now. That's what the Spanish FA have put forward. There are still 11 match days left in the first division, a proposal of no champion and the current top four would go into the Champions League. But, Dimitro, it's looking a little bit messy.
1: Well, yeah, it is uh, just because... Javier Tebas is in charge, but it's not much better in those tournaments run, in those leagues run by the federation, uh, Segunda B and Tercera, third and fourth tiers. Uh, They also have no solution so far. For them, yes, it would be good to stop the leagues just because the financial implications for those clubs will be very serious. But also, they still haven't decided... They're talking to Luis Rubiales, the president of the federation. And, for example, getting back to first division, Getafe are not happy about that possible scenario because they're level on points with Real Sociedad. And actually, in Spain, they usually take into account head-to-head and Getafe beat Real Sociedad. But they only take that into account when teams play twice one against each other. So Getafe are not happy and there will be probably other clubs who will will not be happy. I think Real Madrid probably won't be happy if uh, they cannot win the league, for example, being just a couple of points behind Barcelona. So I think that in Spain, in the first division especially, they will try to do everything they can uh, to finish the season and to play all 38 games. But you mentioned that in Germany and Austria, the government's dedicated good job. Especially in Germany, fighting the coronavirus. In Spain, no. It's probably one of the most uh, chaotic governments around now, and they do have a lot of problems. So it's very difficult to protect when Spain can at least think about any date of resuming the season.
3: I think, you know, there's a general feeling as well across uh, Europe, across any leagues that, you know, footballers, you know, a footballer has to be ashamed that they want to come back. But again, you know, we discussed it before. Uh, it's like any uh, businesses. There's financial implication. Despite, you know, if the environment is good. Of course, we all know, like, footballers will come back. If the environment is right, Is testing been done, and the players, you know, will be, let's say, in quarantine, well, not in quarantine, but at least 48 hours together in the, in, in the same place, and they can travel together to the game. No, we have to make sure all the measures are, take, are in place to have a game to be played. But having said that, there is a kind of voices across Europe saying, yeah, but football, like, you know, who cares about it? It drains, you know, business, it drains money, indirect jobs linked to the football. It's a huge economy uh, across uh, the continent. And uh, I think we shouldn't be ashamed of, you know, seeing football uh, being back on the pitch and... Um, it will happen sooner or later. Uh, we talk about Germany, Australia. I know France also looked at to come back at some stage in June or July to finish season uh, around August. I know Lizard uh, expressed, you know, his views today in L'Equipe, explained, like, he came with an idea. It's very rare, like, players will, exp- will talk and, uh, about it, especially the guys, you know, who are currently playing. And uh, Lizarazu Azu has a voice. He won the World Cup, the European Championship, and... Uh, did really well, Bayern, and he explained that uh, we should have a five-five weeks break and start, you know, the uh, finish the season in July, and August, and and just carry on with the next season. So that's his view, that's his opinion, and uh, why not? And uh, because he was saying, if the players or clubs and uh, the league stop over, you know, let's say months, it takes about five weeks to get in shape and to be a play, and uh, and to make sure there's no injuries as well, because if the preparation is done properly, that could affect, you know, the players
2: just to come in on that Stefan, I'm sure you saw as well, um, the, uh, players union in France did a survey that found that the vast majority, I think it was three quarters of the players don't want to restart playing in June because they're not sure that it would be safe for them, but they also don't want to avoid the season. And then you have all sorts of other factors that come into it. We're talking about Germany, um, the 16 different States, which, will uh, presumably start up uh, at different times or have different restrictions as as they start up. So you could be in a situation where some games can be played and others can't, depending on where you are in the country. And technically, all large gatherings outdoors are banned in Germany to, until the end of August. So uh, that has to be sorted out as well. But they're
0: still looking for um, to get started uh, in the middle of May. Likewise for Italy, uh, tonight the Italian FA chairman Gabriella Gravina has said those who argue for a cancellation of the season don't like football and they don't like the Italian people. Now, 23,000 have died in Italy so far. Brescia and Torino, the areas affected the worst in terms of Serie A clubs and Atalanta also, in terms of the geography of it all. The lockdown in Italy is expected to be lifted on the 4th of May. I mean, the way we're looking at it at the moment, we've also had news about what UEFA want to do at the end of the Champions League. They want to play the final on the 29th of August. Obviously, it's on in Istanbul. There is a potential plan, a last resort, if you like, if they can get it played on the 29th of August, that they'd have a mini tournament, almost like a mini World Cup, where the quarterfinals, semifinals, and final would all be played in Istanbul in a week in the end of August and the Europa League final due to be played in Gdansk three days earlier. Obviously we have a problem with the Europa League because a lot of the last, uh, 16 ties haven't been played yet. And four of the last 16 ties out of the eight in the Champions League yet to be completed.
3: Yeah. I think, uh, like Mark pointed out, um, from countries to countries, I mean, the games will have to be played regionally. And, uh, I won't be surprised if, uh, let's say, you know, look at France or Spain, Madrid uh, and like Paris, uh, London have uh, been, you know, seriously impacted by the virus and uh, some other part of the countries. Uh, I'm not saying are safe, but I'm more inclined, you know, to uh, maybe in a month's time or, two, or a month and a half to, to have, uh, you know, games to be played. But again, we need to be sure there's a process in place that you know, the players and also the staff Around the stadium uh, to be part of uh, putting uh, in place a game, but having said that, with UEFA and also the um, each respectively to make the right decision at the right time. Oh, I just want to mention something about Germany. Sky Sport Deutschland pays final tranche two hundred twenty-five million to the Bundesliga. That was done to thirty-six professional clubs in Germany, and uh, that was that's quite important. They expect as well money coming from. Uh, ARD and ZDF, the public TV, uh, since 40 million and, and Dyson as well, 20 million. So there's no pressure because it boats apparently some games uh, to Eurosport, to Dutchland. And uh, so that money will be welcome to all the clubs in Germany.
0: Uh, by the way, Stefan, I believe you just got some news from the United States.
3: Correct, Will. The MLS uh, just confirmed that... Uh, well, they hope to return by mid-May, but in fact, uh, they extended the postponement of match play until the 8th uh, of June, uh, based on the guidance of the US federal and local public health authorities. And uh, so the MLS still looking at different scenarios to uh, to play the, uh, the, the the full season. Uh, maybe, maybe look at, you know, um, the league to be playing some... Uh, Part of the countries where we know New York has been affected a lot, but uh, they look at you know different uh, scenarios to uh, well to uh, resume the league as soon as they can.
0: I think people just want to see sport back at this stage, which is why you've got the you know the e Formula One races going out live in place of the proper Formula One races, which have been postponed until way off into the summer. Um, also, why you've got the home. PDC Darts competition's on and uh, Dimitro an e-premier league as well
1: yeah I've heard something about it but I'd rather not comment on it (laughs) you know we still have the Belarus league we have Tajikistan Taiwan they also started this season and Turkmenistan is poised to be back as well and Nicaragua they're still playing in Nicaragua so there is a choice well something we forgot to talk about as well uh referees
3: referees i mean that's part of the games and uh, some referees in england are professionals i just discovered this week like for example in the netherlands in the euro division, some referees they're also professional and they all have jobs like uh, bjorn creepers is uh owns a supermarket uh, danny McKinley is uh is a policeman and those guys as well they earn uh, some money like with the games i mean the referee in the netherlands will uh, a game, a top referee in the Netherlands will earn over 3,000 euro for a game, and the linesman will be over like 1,600 euro, and the video ref, but a thousand euro. And those people are coming short every weekend because they're not getting paid. And uh, apparently, the KNVB uh, and the Unidivisi are preparing enough from payment to cover the loss uh, of the referees in the Netherlands. I don't know about the the uh, English game, I know the Premier League, they're all professionals. Are they going to do something about it? Because they all. Getting paid, presumably monthly. Uh, are they getting bonuses as well? I am not too sure the situation in England.
0: Yeah, Belarus remains the only European country where action continues. It is weekend five of the Belarus Premier League, and FK Slutsk have gone top again. They beat Shakhtar Soligorsk tonight, two one, to go above energetic Bigu Minsk, who weren't energetic enough because they were beaten at home last night by Gorodeya by one goal to nil. Turkmenistan no doubt are putting a lot of money into their football they put 5 billion euros into building the Olympic Park for the Asian indoor games that I worked at three years ago in Ashgabat so there is no doubt that money is no object and they will probably go ahead as planned there. I I guess if and when football comes back whatever sport we have for the remainder of the year has to be for safety reasons behind closed doors it cannot be any other way there has to be
3: behind uh, closed doors It Abs- has to be because uh I know in Netherlands they're talking about you know 2021 to have the first game March March April 2021 to have a game with uh, fans so it's going to be a long way it depends again you know on the uh, on the country and but things can change dramatically as well in the next you know three or four five months we don't know exactly uh, what to expect apparently Netherlands will we look at you in 2021 to have supporters in the stadium.
2: And just a word on that as well, Will. The uh, Germans, have, of course, have the uh, best word for this type of game. It's a Geisterspiel, which means a ghost game.
0: Well, we are set to have the world's biggest football-only stadium being built in China. Gangs Ever Evergrande have announced on Friday they want to build the largest football stadium in the world. It would hold 100,000 spectators. Football-only would cost $1.7 billion dollars and the only stadiums with bigger capacities in the world, the Melbourne Cricket Ground, uh, the Dallas Cowboys ATT Stadium, and the 1st of May Stadium in North Korea. Um, what's the most impressive stadium you've been at, actually, through your journalistic careers?
3: Wembley, I was um, at a really World Cup game, Ireland against Romania. Not some of the most exciting one, but uh, yeah, very impressive. A massive stadium from inside, outside, and Magnificent! I was surprised because you have the old Wembley, and the new ones, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful stadium.
1: Well, as a journalist, I would probably go for Westfalen Stadium, just because it is such a fantastic place to commentate from. But as a fan, well, first of all, yeah, I probably would have to mention the stadiums that my home club usually plays in, but abroad. It just No contest It's on the hill In London okay. Unfortunately Barnet Cannot play there anymore okay. I'll go in. But for me It's On the hill
2: Yeah like Dimitro I was really impressed With uh, Dortmund I remember being there In uh, August 2014 German Super Cup For uh, Eurosport I was there commentating Dortmund famous For their fans 80,000 Inside the ground um, We were there About three hours Before setting up and so too were a good number of Dortmund fans already on the yellow wall, making sure they got their spot. And um, So that tells you the dedication and the um, the fun they have watching their team. And another one um, I really love is uh, Union Berlin's stadium in Köpenick in the east of Berlin. They're promoted to the Bundesliga this season. Incredible atmosphere there. Um, really tight ground. um Right up against the the players, and only holds about twenty two thousand, but it's um the stadium by the old forester's lodge is the the uh, translation, and um, that's what it's like. You have to walk through a forest, pretty much, walk along the edge of a wood uh, to get into the ground. It's a pretty special experience in and out of uh, that particular stadium.
0: Well, I'll stay in Berlin for you. I mean, I've worked at the Olympic Stadium quite a number of times, mainly for athletics, a little bit of football as well. And it's just the history of the place. It was upgraded ahead of the 2006 World Cup, but very much still keeps the same structure. You've got the wonderful, huge stone pillars all the way in the outside of the stadium. You've got the marathon gate, which I think faces the east, which is just tremendous a a unique selling point the new Wembley is wonderful to work from I've been at the Westphal in stadion as well also the Olympic stadium in London when it was an Olympic stadium back in 2012 when the capacity was a bit higher when there was a crowd of 80,000 and you'd 80,000 in there 80,000 happy souls delightful to watch the sport that was going on there unlike now uh, where West Ham play there well we'll turn now to revelations of the season some players who, at a young age, have lit up football in Europe and beyond over the past 12 months. My one, I'm afraid, is a pretty much obvious choice. But what about the rest of you? Who's caught your eye so far this season? Stefan?
3: Uh, to me, uh, there's definitely one player caught my attention and uh, will be Mohamed Atahein. Atahein is a young player, he's 18. Play played for PSV in Dover in the Eurodivisie. Is um, an exceptional talent. Just started the Dutch team with Royal Common as well. He could have played with the Moroccan League. He's from Moroccan origin and uh, became play player for both teams and decided to uh, to go for the Netherlands after a meeting with Royal Common in 2019. Uh, started, made his debut when he was 16, which is uh, unbelievable. And uh, I know the uh, the Dutch uh, clubs gave chance to young players, but this guy is Super talented, and then he has been such an important player this season for PSU in Darwin at 18. He was one of the uh, well known players in the academy, and he has a huge reputation at 16 years of age and uh, and doing his debut for PSU in Darwin. I think this season he, he played, uh, I think he had you know 33 appearances, um, nine assists, and seven goals. 18 years of age, I think. His best position is definitely as a number 10 behind the striker. Uh, he was playing behind Donny Malen before he got injured. Donnie Malen uh, picked up an injury in his knee and uh, was doing so well. Donnie Malen, for people does don't know him, uh, used to play for Arsenal and came back to the uh, to the uh, Netherlands to uh, rejuvenate his career. He's still a young player, he's only 20 years of age. and uh, But they were very impressive together. But yeah, and can also play on the wing. Uh, he's very versatile, great ability, very skillful, uh, technically very gifted um, and very predictable. He can play long, can play short, good vision, good passing, good passing range. To me, he's got uh, such talent that I can't see PSV Eindhoven keeping for the next two seasons. It's impossible. Uh, I'm afraid that if he leaves, you know, too soon, uh, maybe going to the Premier League or the Bundesliga or La Liga or Serie A or or maybe a French club, Paris. Is he ready, you know, to step up another game? I'm not sure he should stay another two seasons, maybe play some European Cup games to get more experience. But potentially there, he has delivered in the Netherlands and uh, he's very, very impressive. And uh, it's uh, definitely a name we need to remember, Mohammed Yatan.
2: Yeah, I've come for uh, Jeremy Doku of Anderlecht, um who uh, many Irish listeners might have seen uh, playing for Belgium against Ireland in the under 17 uh, European Championships in Tala in Dublin last May and um, he's someone who's just improved incredibly Vincent Company came in and uh, gave a lot of young players a chance and uh, Doku is just getting better game by game his um, parents did a, a really interesting interview a couple of months back with um, Le Deache, one of the uh, Belgian papers and they were just saying that he could have joined Pretty much any club he wanted to um when he was 16 just coming up to uh, signing his first pro contract and um he went over to liverpool with the family one of uh, several clubs he visited and uh, steven gerrard was there still working with the um youth clubs at the time showed him a few videos talked to him mignolet and uh wijnaldum were there speaking his language they were able to um try and persuade him as well and Jurgen Klopp told his parents that listen we think this kid can be the uh, successor to S- Sadio Mane if uh, we manage him right and his father said I wanted Jeremy to go to Liverpool gave him a week to make the decision Andelect's um, main uh, youth coordinator brought in uh, the help of Romelu uh, Lukaku who recorded a video saying maybe you should stay at Andelect um, you know, you'll get to play there, and you'll uh, you'll get plenty of experience before making your big move. Apparently, Doku's a very level-headed guy, and he made his own decision a week later. said, I want to stay at Anderlecht. He got a new contract, uh, big money, it has to be said, for a teenager. And he's really broken through this season. I did a, one of his games recently, um, back at the start of February against Ghent. He started on the right wing, second half on the left wing. Absolutely tore. Uh, Alessio Castro Montes, the uh, Ghent fullback, apart. It was one of the most explosive performances I've seen from a youngster in a very long time. Having said that, the next week he got red carded at the end of uh, the first half in a crucial game, so he still has a bit to learn as well.
1: Yeah, uh, before I start talking about the player I chose for this one, I just wanted to briefly uh, say something about Yataran and Doku, because, yeah, we did see uh, Doku in Ireland during the European Under-17 Championship. Yeah, Talent could have played, but since he was already with the first team, the manager of the Dutch team told us that, well, I, I would love to have him, but uh, the first team relies on him now. So he did not even go to the World Cup, Under-17 World Cup in Brazil, uh, which was uh, played uh, later uh, that year. And another thing, Stefan mentioned that Morocco wanted him to play for them as well, and it is understood that they were too aggressive pursuing the player. When Mohammed's father passed away, the people from Federation showed up at the funeral and tried to convince him to switch to Morocco right there. So that was something that really didn't go well with the family. And just a few weeks after that, uh, Mohammed said that he would play for. The Netherlands. Well, now about the player I didn't really expect to be as good as he is this season is Eduardo Camavinga from Rennes. Because usually when we talk about revelations, you know, it's very difficult, you know, to talk about revelations now because one way or the other you can see a player at a certain level of maybe playing for the national team under fifteen in South America or under seventeen, under nineteen in the Europe. But last season, Kamavinga played just seven games in the first team. And honestly, I cannot say that he was very impressive. But this season starts second game against Prix Saint Germain at home. Ren won the game to one, and he was one of the best. And he was still 16 years old. He's 17 now. He plays as a central midfielder, usually. Ren would play with four four two. So he's one of the two central midfielders working both ways. He takes a ball off an opponent, and actually, according to statistics of League One, he is the one who actually does it more than any other player in the league. And quite successfully as well. And then he just makes those first passes. You know, he's not the guy who does a lot of key passes he's not the guy who assists he scored only one goal but if you need someone at at the age of 17 you know playing in the middle of the park that's a guy that's really impressive now and i don't know what stefan can say because sometimes you know you have those kids in league one especially coming through and then it depends. Because I remember I commentated on the very first game Usman Dembélé played for Rennes. And I would never believe that just a few months or a year later, he'd be a Dortmund player and then Barcelona player even uh, faster. So it's really interesting to see how Kamovinka develops because he's got everything that a central defender, central midfielder, sorry, uh, needs in the game now. And being only 17... Yeah, it's it's really impressive what he can do on the pitch.
3: Yeah, I agree, uh, Mitro. Me I mean, there's not many players across Europe that you can say at 16 or 17, like yeah, Iatane or Doku or, or Kamavinga, uh, can play top-level football. It's very rare. Special players, obviously. And for Kamavinga, yes, I agree. 100 percent with you, Mitro. I mean, he's, he's, he's excellent. And it's also, you know, his maturity at uh, such a young age. He's, um, he's, uh, he can link, you know, the play in the middle the park. And um, he's got a great engine. For such young players and uh, as you can imagine he's going to improve a lot for the next few years and uh he don- doesn't lose many balls as well it's uh it's it's very rare his passing rise is excellent and uh and especially his tactical awareness is unbelievable for such a young age and julian Stefan, again you know he's trying to keep him at the club he's, he's a very young player and uh, we know apparently the latest news is uh Zidane in Real Madrid as uh, as an eye on him, and once once he's at the club, even though they're talking about Paul Pogba, but Camavinga could be the next one uh,
1: to go yes. to Real. Even though it's I know it's very early, but uh... that will break him now. If he goes there, that will break him. Uh, he, he he cannot go to Real Madrid now. I know that Zidane actually told Real Madrid to get Rafael Varane very exactly. young and early success yeah. as well, but. I think Kimovinger can play in League One for one, two, three seasons because he's only seventeen. And the other thing that I wanted to mention here, it's in general about League on, because when you have the same team winning the league, and people somehow don't say the same about Bundesliga in Serie A where we've got the same champion for a few years in a row, they sort of don't even want to see how many interesting players League on produces every single season. Yes, PSG up there. They will win the league again. It's obvious. But when you watch all those games with different teams, with different players, it's just amazing how many new names you can discover, especially if you haven't been following that league before. That's what happened to me when I started commentating on it. Because it's one thing when you just watch a game or two, that, just a few games a season, and when... You really immerse yourself into it, and I remember I spoke to Stefan, It was like about eight years ago when I started coming to in League One, and Stefan told me that League One back then was a bit similar to what Serie A used to be in terms of tactics and tactical preparation of the players. So now, when we're talking about a seventeen-year-old being tactically aware, that's also the school of the French football, and French first division.
2: Yeah, worth uh, mentioning on. Camavinga as well it was uh, match day two of the season Ren beat PSG 2-1 Camavinga only turned 17 in November and uh, back in August he was named man of the match had an assist in that game against the champions he was the league player of the month for August and he's um, started 24 games already in the league Ren in third at the moment And uh, crucially for France as well. He was born in Angola, moved quite young. But he got his uh, citizenship in November, I think it was. And now he's a France under-21 international. And um, you'd be very surprised if he doesn't become a key player for the senior team in a few years. I mean,
0: from my point of view, he's not really an unknown player anymore. But he's been the best teen that I've seen this year. And actually probably the best player I've seen so far this season, Erling Haaland. Um, we saw last summer, I remember seeing the goal updates coming in when Norway were playing Honduras in the under-20 World Cup and it was, it was 7-0 and then 8-0 and then 9-0 and eventually Norway won 12-0 and Haaland scored nine of those. It was the biggest ever victory at an under-20 World Cup, possibly at any World Cup full stop. Um, so then it comes along to September, I'm working on the Champions League, Salzburg's opening game of the competition against Racing Genk, Haaland's Champions League debut, and he scores a hat-trick, and he scores a hat-trick in something like 30 minutes or something like that, the, uh, something like the youngest player to score a Champions League hat-trick of all time, he set a whole lot of records on the opening night, Salzburg went on to win that by six goals to two. He was only the second teenager ever in Champions League history to score in each of his first three appearances in the competition. Obviously, the hat-trick against Genk. He then scored against Liverpool, then scored two against Napoli. So that was six goals in his first three games. That was a record full stop. First player ever in the history of the Champions League going back <clears throat> to 1992 to have scored as many goals in the first three games. So he just kept going, kept going. And then a lot of talk that Manchester United were really interested in getting him. But I think he pulled off a very shrewd move in not going to England, not going to Manchester United, which was you know, far too high profile. But obviously, as we've also seen in the case of Minamino going to Liverpool, having been virtually ever-present for Salzburg all season and teeing up a lot of... Uh, Haaland's goals and scoring a lot himself for Salzburg. Minamino going to Liverpool and hardly seeing any game time at all. So, so far this season, he'd scored 28 goals in 22 competitive games for Salzburg, then went across to Dortmund, which I think is pretty much the best place for him. Hat trick in his Bundesliga debut. Absolutely sensational. Only went across for something like €20 million. On as a substitute, a 23-minute hat-trick against Augsburg in a 5-3 victory. And since then, he's gone on to score 12 goals in 11 games, 9 in 8 games in the league before the suspension. And he's been incredible. He's been absolutely sensational and did play for Honor Gunnar at Molde. So there is a connection there. But I think he's made entirely the right move in going to Germany as a young player because, yes, there'll be a lot of attention on him. He will be nurtured in Germany and he will get a lot of game time there where it may not necessarily have been the case in England. And he is so impressive that... You know, even Neymar was mimicking at the end of that uh, Champions League defeat at the hands of Paris Saint-Germain, which was a little bit immature by Neymar.
2: The thing about that, Will, is um, it's his attitude as well and his his work ethic. Just covering the Bundesliga as well. um, Lucien Favre says he gets angry if he misses a chance in training. And Mats Hummels has said in the past, you know, you just see how hard he works every day in training on his game and there's a very good chance that he'll keep it up. And yes, Neymar, and not just Neymar, but a lot of the PSG players, not just on the pitch, but also uh, in the dressing room after, were uh, making a big deal of mocking Haaland for his celebration. Haaland had scored twice in the 2-1 win over PSG in that first leg. To be fair, PSG marshalled them very well in the second, but Erling Haaland just uh, strikes me as the type of guy who will, one, not do that to another team himself, he'll have a bit more respect, but two, he'll remember that, and that could well hold uh, PSG and a few of those players down the line.
0: I can see a lot of those PSG names in his little black book. He surely already has one. He, he will track them down. Do you he, remember he the gesture
1: by Kuzava when Sweden played France on the yeah. 20th
3: with quiddity, yeah, I remember that, yeah.
1: You remember that? When when Sweden actually then ended up winning the whole thing. And it was, it, it, it was, it was fantastic. Just, but uh, about Holland, uh, he played for Norway under-19. In October of 2017, Ukraine played Norway in the first round of qualification for the European Championship. And when I was looking through the squad of Norway, I noticed two familiar last names. One was Bochinen, and Emil, of course, is the son of Lars Bochinen who played in England. And another one was Erling Brod, Holland, And that game was 2-1 to Ukraine, but of course, our young hero scored a goal for Norway. He also got a brace against Albania, and he scored against Montenegro. So it was four in three games. He was still playing for Molda. And he was still mostly coming on as a sub. His next season, 2018, was the first one when he started playing regularly for Mold. And there was a famous game against brunn when he scored four. It was an away game and it took him about 17 minutes to get four goals. So, again, people were talking about him back then and he kept on playing for under-19s. He played then for under-21s as well, and then he moved on to Salzburg, and as they say, yeah, the rest is history. But from the very first day, you could see that the guy was very determined and always had an eye for goal. It couldn't just stop him, even if uh, his team wasn't uh, the favourite in the game. He just needed to get his goal, and that was obvious.
0: And you've noticed him develop physically as well. He he looks awesome in a Borussia Dortmund shirt as he did with Salzburg. But now that he's wearing the yellow and black, he just seems to have developed even more.
1: It's natural. It's natural for any young player. He has a new challenge. It's a bigger league, bigger club, bigger expectations. And he seems to be relishing and enjoying it. That's another good thing about him. Again, we're talking here about revelations and stuff. When he is a fantastic player, but when you saw him back then, 17, 18, there was something about him. Yeah, he, that's what Mark mentioned earlier. And the guy was unstoppable. He just went for a goal. He didn't want to stop no matter how many goals he would get in, in, a, in a game. So this is one of the probably most amazing examples of how a player from a league like Norwegian League can get to the top. But the but, the question I have, um, yes, he played for Ule, but do you think his father would really want him to play for Man United?
3: I'm not so sure <laughs> after the uh, Rolkin episode yeah. against, you know, against Man United. But coming back you know, to, uh, to Ireland, and he's, he's still a young player, but uh, you have to remember at 16 years of age, he was offered a try to Offenheim. And, uh, and refused to go to Offenheim because he wanted to play first in football, which he did with uh, Mulder. And uh, he's also very determined and knows quite well his skill set, is willing to improve, as Mark said initially at training. He wants to score goals and uh, he's listening his coach. He wants to listen his coach. He's, he's prepared to get advice and, uh, and take the on board and, and to implement it on the pitch. And you can see, to me, it was a breath of fresh air uh watching in the Champions League and Bundesliga. Um it, it was quite impressive and uh it's quite important for a striker. He's able to create chances for every game. Even though he's not doing too well, he will work for the team. He's a team player and uh you know that and uh and even though against PAG didn't have a great game but he's still a threat you know for any teams in Europe.
0: And just about Haaland, that second goal he scored against Paris Saint-Germain just moments after PSG had scored themselves in the home game, the 2-1 win at the Westfalen. Utterly incredible. Fantastic. Magnificent. Just latched onto it and bang. And the sound that the ball made as it rattled the back of the net was, was just electric. Fantastic. He's yeah, a young
3: player because uh, if you remember that game, the first leg, he had a lot of chances he could have scored you know, more goals in the, uh, against you know, PSG. But he used to be more clinical. But he's young as a striker. We learn uh, uh, to be even more decisive in front of the goal. But uh, he's such a power, and he's going to, um, I guess, you know, for the next, you know, two or three years, if he's uh, injury free, he could be one of the best striker in Europe.
2: Can I just go back to that uh, incident with Kozara? because, because uh, yeah. just in case any <laughs> any listeners don't remember it, it was. Um, the salutes yeah it was farcical it was the uh, playoffs for the 2015 European under 21 championship France had won the first leg 2-0 uh, Sweden were 3-0 up Korzava scores with 3 minutes to go does a military salute in the face of uh, John Godetti and other Swedish players France thought they were through obviously Sweden score the very next minute you can imagine uh, what the celebration was then And not only that, Sweden went on to win the European Championships on penalties against Poland. And on the podium, there's a great photo of the whole squad as they get the trophy, doing the military salute
0: as a message for uh, you-know-who. Now, we've got uh, quite a lot of great retro football again this weekend being shown on TV. And after a couple of weekends of World Cup Classics, uh, BBC won this weekend. They've got the FA Cup semi-finals from 1990. Two absolutely incredible games. Um, there's quite a background to it. Obviously, people remember the fact that we had 13 goals across the two matches, and they were both absolutely legendary encounters. But worth remembering as well that a year prior we had had Hillsborough, the terrible loss of life there between Liverpool and, and Nottingham Forest. And that day, the 15th of April, 1989, the anniversary of which passed away a couple of days ago, the 31st anniversary. The two semifinals that day, Liverpool against Nottingham Forest, Everton versus Norwich City. They were the last two semifinals to be played, not to be shown live on British television for safety reasons 2 years earlier we had the first ever semi final on a sunday which was Coventry against Leeds played at 12:30 at Villa Park and then shown in full on a couple of hours delay on ITV The Liverpool Forest rematch in 89. That was shown live on BBC television and played on a Sunday at Villa Park. So for safety measures from then on, the FA decided that all FA Cup semi-finals would be shown live on television. But how would they do it? Well, they play it on a Sunday. Saturday wasn't really a live TV day at the time. Crystal Palace against Liverpool at lunchtime at Villa Park, followed immediately by Manchester United against Oldham at Main Road, both shown live on BBC television during the... Des Leinem, John Motson, Barry Davis era. And Liverpool and Manchester United both expected to win easily to counter it. Liverpool had beaten Palace 9 0 in the league at Anfield earlier in the season. Sure enough, Liverpool scored early through Ian Rush. Rush then went off injured a few minutes after. Liverpool couldn't get a second. They were still 1 0 up at half time. And Liverpool kicked off the second half, lost possession immediately. And Palace equalised within 20 seconds of the restart through Mark Bright. And then went 2-1 up with 20 minutes to go through Gary O'Reilly. Late on in the second half, Steve McMahon equalising with nine minutes to go to make a 2-2. Then a spot kick from John Barnes, and that really looked to have set the seal on it, only for Andy Gray to equalise for Palace almost in the last minute. Extra time, Alan Pardew popping up in the second period of the same, and Palace incredibly, astonishingly, unbelievingly going through to the cup final 4-3. And then you think, oh, well, that's... That's incredible. But, you know, the second game, Manchester United against Oldham, it's not going to be as good. Realistically, it was every bit as good. Oldham taking the lead. If I remember, I think it was it was Earl Barrett, 1-0 up in that. United going 2-1 up through Robson and Webb. Oldham equalising through Ian Marshall 2-2. We go into extra time. United go in front again through, I think it was Danny Wallace and then... Uh, Roger Palmer tying it up for 3-3, and fair enough, Manchester United end up winning the, the replay, but that was a magnificent Oldham team over Joe Royal. They ended up going up from the second division, not that season, but the season after. Also reached the League Cup final, and a, an absolutely incredible day of football. The first original Super Sunday, if you like. Two FA Cup semi-finals back-to-back, which pretty much laid the foundation for what we've seen in English football since. And probably along with Arsenal pipping Liverpool to the title at the end of the previous season on the last day, the start of real dramatic live televised league football in England.
2: Wasn't what made uh, the Liverpool result in particular so spectacular in that game even more momentous? The fact that uh, Palace had lost 9-0 to them in the league a few months before, a bit like... Leicester and Southampton this season, the tables are turned later in the year, but obviously this game had a lot more significance. Yeah,
0: both managers had had uh, program notes for the game and like Steve Koppel, I I think Alan Smith, who was his assistant, he's only recently come on Twitter, but Alan Smith has come along and said, well, we were hoping to keep Liverpool down maybe to four goals going into that game. And even in the match programme, Steve Koppel was saying there's no denying Liverpool are a wonderful side because going into it, there wasn't really the anticipation. Yes, we were going to have, for the first time ever on television, a live double bill of FA Cup semi-finals. Previously in Ireland, we'd had one semi-final live if it didn't clash with the Grand National. Other countries, mainly Scandinavia, were going to get those games live as well. But it was the first time we'd back-to-back semi-finals. There was excitement about that, but I'm not necessarily sure there was excitement going into the day about the two semi semi-finals because they were both expected to be relatively one-sided and that we would be looking forward to a Liverpool-Manchester United final, but it didn't happen. Uh, And without Ian Wright, by the way, who was injured going into it, Ian Wright came back for the final against Manchester United, uh, came on as sub, scored twice in that in the three-all draw against Manchester United. Uh, Mark Hughes doing the same, he'd knock, going into the decider, so he didn't start either. Palace had three or four players missing for that and still managed to produce perhaps their greatest result ever, having only come up the previous season via the playoffs.
3: And, you know, Will, just in relation to that, was it, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the first trophy for Ferguson?
0: Yes, it was. Yes, it was. And, like, the thing was, he had taken charge... Late in 1986, he was under massive pressure. Like Ron Atkinson, um, for the 85-86 season, Manchester United won their first 10 games. They were unbeaten after 13 and then had a massive injury crisis during a very, very heavy winter. Uh, I remember Gordon Strachan pulling a hamstring. Brian Robson had picked up a couple of injuries during that season. And also a suspension he was sent off against Sunderland. So... They were losing a lot of the major talent. Gary Bailey got injured. Chris Turner had to be brought in. So they ended up collapsing in what was, for a long time, a five-way race for the title. I think they ended up finishing fourth or fifth, and they were way down on Liverpool, Everton, and West Ham, all three of whom still had a chance of a title going into the final day, and Everton-West Ham had a back game to be played as well on the bank holiday Monday after that. So Manchester United were under big pressure going into 86-87. They'd lost their first three games. They were in the relegation zone for a lot of that time. Alex Ferguson came in, got them to mid-table. They played very well the following season in 88, where they finished second. But then the following season, they were down the table again. They had an early exit in the FA Cup, beaten by Arsenal in the fifth round. So he really had to deliver. They were going badly in the league again in 1990. They were well out of contention for the title. And essentially, they had to win their third round tie away to Brian Clough's Nottingham Forest, who were a very good cup side at the time. They'd won the League Cup the previous season. They were going to win the League Cup in 1990 as well. They had to win. Mark Robbins comes off the bench, scored a late winner. United scroped through 1-0. And literally, the rest is history. In many ways, that was along with the season before on and off the pitch two very pivotal seasons which have brought us to where we are now in English football well,
2: they used to talk about the cup can save your season and that proves the point because knowing not what we know now about Ferguson but just looking through that run um, back on, on, on that particular run in the FA Cup they won every game by one goal uh, Forest away Hereford away Newcastle away Sheffield United away um, and then obviously Went to extra time in both the semi and the final, needing a replay to win both. They finished thirteenth in the league that season, United. Um, so you can imagine the pressure Ferguson must have been under. He wins the FA Cup the next season. He wins the Cup Winners' Cup, just like he did with uh, Aberdeen.
3: Yeah, yeah, the terrible season. Up. But uh, again, you know, a bit of luck as well in the final, uh, the replay, because uh, the the Lee Martin scored a winning goal uh, in the replay. Apparently, according to Alex Ferguson, he had doubts about his fitness, and uh, he was not meant to play. And In fact, Ferguson put him on the pitch and uh, scored a winning goal. Pretty amazing story.
0: Yeah, and Palace were leading the original fixture in the final 3-2, Ian Wright having scored twice. If I I remember the season before, Ian Rush had scored twice, becoming the first substitute to score twice in an FA Cup final, and Stuart McCall had scored twice for Everton, and then Ian Wright and Mark Hughes did exactly the same thing the following season. Hughes scoring late for 3-3. Then it went to a replay, the first time we'd had an FA Cup final replay since 1982. And Spurs had won back-to-back cup finals in that fashion. It set the foundation for what followed for Manchester United. You would have to say now, and in fact probably in the last 15 years, you would not be saved by a cup run. You remember, 2012, Liverpool won the League Cup under Kenny Dogleash in his second spell in charge and also reached the FA Cup final, losing to Chelsea. But he still lost his job and Brendan Rodgers came in. That was back at a time when you know the FA Cup was a lot bigger, a lot more significant than it is now. And as somebody who remembers those great FA Cup times and what excitement a big midweek FA Cup replay could produce... Those days are definitely gone. We still have them in different countries. You know, the Belgian Cup, the French Cup, especially Germany. The Cup is still a serious big deal. Sadly, in England now, you'd have to say not so.
1: Well, uh, I didn't, of course, watch those games back in the 1990s because my first exposure to English football and English Cup football was in ninety one ninety two 92 season. But I watched those games later and I'd say that there was a bit more quality in the Liverpool Palace game than in the Man United-Toldham game. But that Man United-Toldham game had something else about it. You know, it's that intensity when the speed probably overwhelms the players themselves. And even though the game is being played on a good pitch, Main Road had a good pitch on that particular day and for the replay as well, you have a feeling they're playing on a muddy surface just like back in the 70s, because, you know, it is just the ball going one way then the other way, and they don't really stop and probably don't even think for too long. And Oldham, I'd say, looked better in the beginning of the first half and in the beginning of the second half. And the United just had to gradually get into the game. And the goal that Brian Robson scored, it was Neil Webber, I think, who made a very beautiful pass and. For Robson to get into the box and, uh, and equalise in the first half it was very important for United because Alden was a fantastic team. That similar season, 1990, they played the League Cup final against Nottingham Forest at Wembley. And they beat Scarborough 7-0 on the way to the final. They beat West Ham 6-0 in the first leg of the semifinal. Like Will mentioned in 91, got promoted under Joe So, And in 94, they also played Man United in the semi final of the FA Cup and Man United already with a title under their belts, even probably even two titles, they needed a replay. So that was a very good side at the time, Oldham. Absolutely a terrific team. That game wasn't as good as Liverpool Crystal Palace, but when we talk about Liverpool-Palace game, I think it was Terry Venables who was alongside John Motson on BBC. And Venables said before the game, no one expects Palace to win. And Palace, in the first half, they could have considered more than one. Ian Ross, I think, got a goal. It was his typical goal, fantastic. He gets the ball onto right foot and scores with the left. And it was the very first attack in the second half for Palace and Mark Bright equalized. And it sort of started the avalanche of the f- fantastic football that they had in in the second half against one of the greatest sides in the history of English football. So I can only imagine how it felt at the time, you know, to watch all those games, like two games in a row with all those goals. And also the grounds. It was Villa Park, I think, for the first one, and Main Road, full stadiums, the proper football atmosphere. Because now, you know, when people say, oh, they sing at Anfield. Yeah, they do, for two and a half minutes. And then, well, they used to sing for a bit longer than that, back in the 80s and 90s, and there was a brilliant atmosphere.
0: Like, worth pointing out that Oldham had a fantastic team, like Dennis Irwin, there was in that side, played for them for a couple of seasons, having come over from Cork, at the age of around 20, and had really impressed there and impressed Alex Ferguson massively in those two games, the original 3-3 draw and the replay, which United took two win an extra time again when Mark Robbins had scored. Um, but I mean they also had like Nick Henry, they had Mike Milligan. Neil Redfern, Paul Warhurst who went to Sheffield Wednesday for a good few seasons and then helped them to a couple of cup finals in 93 against Arsenal and up front, Ian Marshall, Roger Palmer, Andy Ritchie. Palmer, if I remember, got an England cap or maybe an England B cap as well and in terms of Manchester United, a man you've mentioned already there Neil Webb who I suppose in one way is a great forgotten hero unfortunately his career was cut short by injury he had joined Manchester United from Forest the previous summer had scored on his debut and the opening day of the season a 4-1 win against Champions Arsenal at Old Trafford the day when Michael Knight had come out and was being announced as their new owner although that didn't last very long at all he he bought he was trying to buy the club for seven million pounds 1989 folks um but but Neil Webb did some great things sadly uh, his career ended by injury quite prematurely probably would have ended up with 50 or 60 England caps played in a number of world cups and obviously would have won quite a few league titles with Manchester United having won you know a league cup and a few good FA cup runs under Brian Clough at Forest
3: Well, I think the end of that win uh, will during the final uh, in the um FA cup set the foundation for the um, English football domination; they won the title in ninety two, ninety three, and uh, and set you know Ferguson to a different planet with Manchester United.
0: Yeah, no doubt about that. And I, I've seen some people mention recently because I mean the games are being shown again this weekend, but the anniversary for it was last weekend, and it was interesting seeing people that they felt that was the seed of what ended up with football moving over to satellite television. Just over two years later, the formation of the Premier League, because it suddenly football had become very attractive to TV companies again. For me, there was another Super Sunday later on in that summer, the second original Super Sunday, if you like. The second round Sunday of the World Cup, where you had Argentina against Brazil in the early afternoon, followed by Netherlands against West Germany at the San Siro in the evening. And I mean, the 1990 World Cup is something we'll talk about probably in the next few weeks, but... I mean, there's no doubting the spectacular football on show from both those occasions, but those FA Cup semi-finals in 1990 are for me a day that I absolutely, and anybody who watched them, it was a footballing day that will never be forgotten. So that's it then from episode three of Lockdown Football. There will be a midweek special where we will deal with commentary, which is due to go out in the last midweek, but... It's just been so busy. There's been so much happening. So apologies for that. As usual, if you enjoyed it, please like it, rate it, leave a comment, etc., etc. I noticed most of our listeners, again, come from Ukraine. Hope you're enjoying it over there. But again, from Will Downing, Demetrius Zulai, Mark Rodden, and Stefan Johnny. Until next time, it's goodbye.